chapter 65, verses 1 through 13. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, show, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make going out in the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pasture of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be together this morning. Appreciate everybody being here for our worship service. I'm excited about this special day that we're able to share together. In Bible class, we had a great presentation from Ricky Burse about the good work that's going on at New Pathways. And then in this hour, to spend time in worship to our God, as has already been mentioned, after this worship hour, we're going to have a potluck meal together. So we hope that you'll stay for that. If you're visiting, we hope you'll stay with us. If you're a member, we hope that you'll stay with us. If you didn't bring food, we hope that you'll stay and if you did bring food, well, then you have to stay. And I, I think I covered everybody in that. We hope you'll stay and have a good time of fellowship with us. And then we'll meet at 1.30 for our afternoon service for a question and answer session. There's been a lot of good questions that have been submitted. And we're looking forward to addressing those together from Scripture. But for now, we're going to be in the 65th Psalm. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to go ahead and get it out if you're not there already. Turn with me to Psalm, the 65th chapter, and we're going to be studying in verses 1 through 13 this morning. Psalm chapter 65, verses 1 through 13. I want to begin with a very insightful quote from A.W. Tozer's book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what he writes. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What comes to your mind whenever you think about Elvis Presley? What comes to your mind whenever you think about fried chicken? What comes to your mind whenever you think about home? Is home a person, a place, a city, a specific building? What comes to your mind whenever you think about the internet? 
What comes to your mind when you think about LeBron James? See, there he's telling you he's number one. What comes to your mind when you think about Christmas or the Christmas season? What comes to your mind when you think about television? What comes to your mind when you see this big, beautiful power tee for Tennessee? Okay, we got several thumbs down there, a little bit vocal on that last one. I can tell you what comes to my mind, disappointment, especially over the last few days, not only with the guys' team, but also with the girls' team. But I imagine that as we flip through those slides and, and you thought about the first thing that comes to your mind, those questions were pretty easy to answer. It just pops into your head. What about this? What comes to your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer says that's the most important thing about you. That's the most significant detail about a person's life. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The single most important detail in a person's life is not what that person might say or do on any given occasion, but what that person conceives God to be like in their heart of hearts. This is the question that should always be before us as individuals. This is the question that should always be before us as a congregation of the Lord's people. Who is God? We can answer that question saying a lot of different things this morning. There's a lot of different passages of Scripture that we could go to. A lot of different passages of Scripture that we could explore together. But what about the 65th Psalm? How does Psalm 65 answer this question? As David speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm chapter 65, what does he tell us about God? What does he tell us about God's nature? What does he tell us about God's character? What does he tell us about God's interactions with us? Let's explore that together this morning. As we walk through Psalm 65, this is the question that I want you to stow away in the back of your mind. This is the question that I want you to continually be reflecting on. Who is God? Whenever we look at Psalm 65, it's divided into three different parts. And in those three different parts of Psalm 65, David reflects on God's interactions with three groups of people that progressively get broader and broader as we move throughout the chapter. And so as we begin to examine this chapter together and we think about who God is, notice in the first five verses, David talks about God's interaction with His people. He talks about God's interaction with the children of Israel. He begins in verse number one by saying that God is worthy. Based on how God had interacted with His people in the past, based on how God had interacted with David, based on how God had interacted with the children of Israel, David saw God as worthy. You see that in the first verse. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. We all have bills that are due at different times throughout the month. You have to pay the bill by the due date. Here, all praise is due to God. The Israelites spent time praising God. The Israelites spent time worshiping God. Why? Because God was worthy of it. But it wasn't just the time they spent in praise. It wasn't just the time that they spent in worship. When you continue in verse 1, it was also about the way that they chose to live. The way that they conducted themselves. The kind of decisions that they made. David mentions that there were Israelites who made vows to God. Vows that they were going to be faithful. Vows that they were going to be dedicated to God. They weren't going to ignore those vows. 
They weren't going to let those vows and those promises fall by the wayside. He says to you, vows shall be performed. And so whether we're talking about praise in worship, or whether we're talking about dedication and faithfulness in life, in verse number one, we see a God who is worthy. Based on how God had interacted with His people, they saw Him as worthy of their praise and worthy of their lives. Number two, in Psalm 65 and verse 2, God interacted with His people by hearing their prayers. In verse 2, David gives a beautiful description of God. O you who hears prayer. When God's people took the time to pray, God took the time to listen. He didn't disregard their prayers. He didn't ignore their prayers. God listened to what they had to say whenever they entered into His throne room. In verse 3, God interacted with His people by forgiving them. When you study the life of David, you see a man of war. You see a man of bloodshed. Even God called him a man of bloodshed. David knew what it was like to prevail over his enemies. He knew what it was like to overwhelm and to overcome those who were fighting against him to be victorious in battle. But then you look at that on the spiritual side. David also knew what it was like to be prevailed over. You study the life of David. He knew what it was like to be overwhelmed by his sin. Overcome by his sin. David knew what it was like to be defeated by his sin. But in those moments, how did God interact with him? In those moments, how did God interact with not just him, but the entire nation of Israel? Verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. David says, when I'm overcome, when I'm overwhelmed by my sin, when my sin is victorious over me, you are the one who atones for me. You are the one who forgives me. In verse 4, God interacted with his people by accepting them. Out of all the nations in the world at that time, God chose the nation of Israel to be his people, to belong to him. And because God chose them, they were able to come close to God. God didn't hold them at arm's length. According to verse 4, He drew them near so that they could dwell in His courts. God blessed them by choosing them, drawing them near, bringing them near so that they can dwell in His presence every day of their lives. God did not reject them. God accepted them. In verse 4, God interacted with His people by satisfying them. Go back again to the beginning of verse 4. It talks about how God chose Israel. God brought Israel close. God allowed Israel to dwell in His courts. David says we're going to be satisfied with that. That's enough for us. He says we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. It was Wednesday of last week when I was in a really bad mood. And I felt like the entire world was against me. Every word that came out of my mouth was a complaint. But then I sat down to eat some food. You know what happened? All of a sudden, I was satisfied. It was like you flipped the switch. It's amazing what a five-piece chicken tender basket from Sonic will do for a person whenever they're in a bad mood. I was satisfied. In a similar vein, when you look at Psalm 65 and verse number 4, but to a higher degree, David says, we're going to be satisfied with you. Your goodness, your holiness is all that we need. We are content in our relationships with you. God gave them satisfaction. 
God interacted with His people by answering their prayers. He didn't just hear their prayers in verse 2. God answered their prayers in amazing ways. By awesome deeds, He answered them in righteousness. And then finally, in verse number 5, God interacted with His people by giving them salvation. Again, a beautiful description of God in verse number 5. O God of our salvation. God is the One who had granted them deliverance. God is the One who had granted them rescue. God is the One who had saved them. God is the One who had brought them peace and security. You look at the first part of this psalm and David's reflecting on God's interaction with His people. Well, you look at that list that comes from Psalm 65 verses 1-5. through I want to ask you, does any of that look familiar to you? Does any of that sound familiar to you? Isn't it amazing to think that God interacts with us in the same ways that He interacted with Israel. That when you look at the first five verses of this chapter, this is not just Israel's story. This is my story. And this is your story. God interacts with us by demonstrating that He's worthy. Whether we're talking about praise and worship like we're offering right now in this worship service, Or whether we're talking about tomorrow, whenever we go out and live our lives and we go throughout the rest of the week, God is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our dedication. He's worthy of our faithfulness. God is worthy of everything that we have. God hears us. Sometimes whenever we pray, it's tempting to think that there's not anybody there, nobody's listening, it's not really making a difference. Scripture tells us otherwise. When we take the time to pray, God takes the time to listen. He hears every word that we utter to Him in prayer. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your sin? Have you ever felt like David in verse 3? I'm overcome by this sin. This sin is defeating me. This sin is victorious over me. How does God interact with us in those moments? When sin prevails against us, He's the one who atones for our transgressions. He's the one who forgives us and takes those sins away God doesn't reject us. God doesn't turn us away. To God, you're not a piece of trash to be thrown in the garbage can. God accepts us as His people. In verse 4, we're able to be satisfied with that. When we get a taste of His goodness, when we get a taste of His holiness, we're able to be satisfied with Him. We're able to be content with what He gives to us in our relationships with Him. Yes, God hears our prayers, but then take that a step further to consider how God answers our prayers. Have you seen that in your life? How God does amazing things. We talked about this with New Pathways in in the hour before this in our Bible class. God listens to our prayers and answers them by awesome deeds. He answers them in righteousness. God gives to us His great gift of salvation. As the body of Christ, we've been delivered from our sins. God has given us peace and stability and security in the midst of our brokenness through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he begins in this psalm by talking about God's interaction with His people. But then notice how he moves and he gets a little bit more broad in verses 5-8 through to talk about God's interaction with the nations. Yes, Israel was God's chosen people. But it would be a mistake for us to say that God only cared about Israel and all the other nations in the world, He didn't interact with them, He didn't care about them, He completely ignored them. That's not the case when you study the Old Testament Scriptures. For instance, look at the book of Jonah and how God wants to interact with the city of Nineveh, just one 
example of that. When we look at David's words in verses 5-8, through we find that God interacted with the nations by offering them hope in verse 5. Can you see the transition? Down about midway through verse 5, he's talking about God's interaction with His people. But then in verse 5, the shift, he says that God is the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Whether the nations recognized it or not, whether they chose to accept it or not, when they looked at the God of Israel, when they saw His mighty works, when they saw His mighty signs, they saw in Him something better. Whenever the nations looked at the God of Israel, they were offered hope. They were offered confidence. And it was up to them about whether they were going to choose to receive it. God interacted with the nations in verses 6 and 7 by demonstrating His control. David talks about that in a few different ways. We mentioned the awesome deeds of the Lord in verse number 5. And we see some of those awesome deeds in verses 6 and 7. For instance, in verse 6, God is the one who by His strength established the mountains. In the Old Testament, mountains are oftentimes symbolic of stability. Mountains are not going to go anywhere. It doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter what happens to the mountain. doesn't matter what happens on the mountain. The mountains are always going to be there. For instance, consider taking a trip to the city of Gatlinburg. Every time I go to Gatlinburg, something changes. There's some new building, some new business, some new restaurant. There's some new attraction where you can go and spend every dime that you have. You know one thing that's not going to change in Gatlinburg? The mountains that surround it. The businesses come and go. Different buildings are going to come up. Different attractions are going to be offered. But every time you visit Gatlinburg, you're going to see the same mountains because it's stable. They're not going to go anywhere. So what's the message in verse number 6? Remember, we're considering how God interacts with the nations. If God can make something as stable as the mountains, do you think He can bring stability to the nations? When the nations rise up, when the nations are thrown into chaos and confusion, do you think that God can take them and put them on a firm foundation? That's David's message. But then he moves on in verse 7 to talk about how God is the one who steals the seas and the roaring of the waves. When you look at the Old Testament again, the seas, the waves, especially when they're roaring, are symbolic of chaos, confusion. And we can understand that. Waves, they come up. They go down, they're powerful, they're strong. Have you ever been knocked down by a wave? But they have no direction. They have no purpose to them. And so in the Old Testament, the seas and the waves depict to us chaos and confusion. What does God do? God is the one who steals the seas. God is the one who steals the roaring of the waves with just a single word. Jesus quite literally did that in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39. Remember the story where He rebuked the wind and He said to the sea, Peace be still. And the result was that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So again, what's the message in verse number 7? Well, you see it at the very end of, of 7. Who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. What is it? The tumult of the peoples. Again, when the nations are thrown into chaos, when the nations are raging, when the nations are thrown into confusion, God is the only one who is capable of bringing them true peace. So whether we're talking about God stealing the sea or establishing the mountains, whether we're talking about Him giving stability or peace to the nations, 
David is talking about God's control. God is the king in heaven who reigns over the kings on earth. God is the one who is in control and demonstrates his control over every kingdom on the face of the planet. And then in verse 8, God interacts with the nations by showing his glory. David considers something very specific in verse 8 about the sunrise and the sunset. He calls it the going out of the morning and the going out of the evening. And something so simple as a sunrise and a sunset, God demonstrates His glory. Every person on the face of the earth is able to look up in the morning or able to look up in the evening time to see a beautiful scene that could only be created by a good and a holy God. And so we see how God interacts with His people, but then we get a little bit more broad to see how God interacts with the nations. I want to suggest to you that God still interacts with the nations in those ways. The nations, people who don't know the Lord, people who don't have relationships with Jesus, when they see God, when they see what God offers, they're able to see something better. Whether they choose to accept it or not, whether they choose to receive it or not, when the nations see God, God is offering them hope. God is offering them confidence. So often when we look at the news, whenever we hear the news, whenever we read the news, we get concerned about what's happening on the world stage and all of these different leaders and how they're interacting and and how they're going to maybe go to war against other groups of people. Can we take comfort in the fact that God is in control? The one who established the mountains, the one who steals the roaring of the sea, has the capability to bring stability and peace to the chaotic nations when and where and how He sees fit. God is in control. And every single day He shows His glory. We don't really think about it, do we? The sun rises in the morning and how the sun sets in the evening. It happens every day. We don't think of it as being very significant, but David does. David says when you see that beautiful sunrise or you see that beautiful sunset, God is revealing to every person on the face of the planet how glorious and majestic and beautiful He actually is. So here's how God interacts with His people. But then let's get a little bit more broad and we'll talk about how God interacts with the nations. But then we get even more broad, perhaps as broad as we can get in verses 9 through 13 to talk about how God interacts with his creation. God is the creator in the beginning. What God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter one and verse one, contrary to some popular philosophies, God did not create everything and then step back. God is not a creator who spoke everything into existence and then left it up to its natural processes. No, God continues to interact with His creation in several ways. Here in Psalm 65, first, David says that God interacts with His creation by giving rain in verses 9 and 10. I can remember whenever I was little, my mom taking around her watering can throughout the house and watering all the plants and the flowers that she had. Maybe you do something similar. God does something similar. God goes throughout His house, watering His plants, watering His flowers. That's what David says in verse number 9. You visit the earth and you water it. 
God gives rain upon the earth. And because God gives rain upon the earth, the river of God is full of water. In verse 10, the furrows and the ridges that are made by man are able to be watered abundantly. At the end of verse number 10, he talks about how God softens the ground with showers. We've seen that a lot over the last few days, over the last few weeks, haven't we? God interacts with His creation by giving rain, but then notice that's not where it ends. God interacts with His creation by also giving growth in verses 9 and 10. Whenever God waters the earth, you watch what happens in verse number 9, it becomes greatly enriched. He says that grain and crops are able to be provided in verse number 9. That's the way that God prepares it. Don't think it's a coincidence. Don't think it's just natural processes. God is involved in His creation by giving rain which gives growth. He says in verse number 10 that when the ground is softened with showers, the blessing is its growth. But again, that's not where it ends. You continue on to 11 through 13. The rain comes, which causes growth. It causes things to be lush and green and beautiful. But then the harvest comes in verses 11 through 13. These people who'd originally read this psalm, David, who originally wrote this psalm, didn't have Walmart to go to whenever they needed groceries for the week. They were reliant upon the rain to cause growth, they were reliant upon the growth to lead to a pretty good harvest if they were going to have food in front of them. David recognizes that God is the one who did that. God is the one who's responsible for that. He says, you crown the year with your bounty. Verse 11, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. It's like God is, is riding through the fields on a wagon and everywhere that wagon goes, things are growing. Things are overflowing with abundance. The harvest is able to be produced. And we have examples of that in 12 and 13. That the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. Notice the overflowing and the overflowing leads to joy they shout and sing together for joy God interacts with his creation he didn't create it and then step back no he gives the rain which causes growth which leads to an abundant harvest and his people being supplied for God continues that today doesn't he in western Kentucky in, in many ways we have a front row seat to God's interaction with his creation Take a second to think about it. We, we live in such a, a scientific culture, but think about it from Scripture. Why does the rain fall from the sky and water the earth? How do plants become so green? How, how are plants able to grow? When the flowers come up out of the ground, how do they become so beautiful? How does the harvest come? When you go to Walmart, why is there food on the shelves? When you sit down to eat, when we sit down to eat in just a few minutes, and I promise it's going to be just a few minutes, whenever we sit down to eat in just a few minutes, how is that food able to be in front of us? It's not just because somebody made it. It's because God is continually interacting with His creation. And so we step back from Psalm the 65th chapter, and we see God interacting with three different groups, and they get more broad. He interacts with His people, verses 1-5. through five. The nations, verses 5-8. through eight. The creation in verses 9-13. through 13. Have you lost sight of the question that we began with? 
You remember the question that we're considering this morning? The question, who is God? How does Psalm 65 answer that question? Whenever you see God interacting with His people, God interacting with the nations, God interacting with the entire creation, who is God? Who is God according to this specific psalm? How would you answer it? When you recognize that God interacts with you by being worthy. And He hears you. He forgives your sin. He accepts you instead of rejecting you. He satisfies you. He answers your prayers. And He gives to you His salvation. And then you get more broad and you think about the rest of the billions of people throughout the world and how God offers them hope. He demonstrates His control. He shows them His glory in something as simple as a sunrise and a sunset. And then you get even more broad and you see how God gives the rain and that rain causes growth and the growth leads to a harvest. According to David in Psalm 65, who is God? How would you answer that question? Can I tell you how I would answer that question? God is good. When you read throughout Psalm 65 and you see how God interacts with you, when you read through Psalm 65 and you see how God interacts with the nations, when you read through Psalm 65 and you see how God interacts with creation, it brings us to a conclusion that our kids know so well. They, I bet they sang it in Bible class this morning. God is so good. Reminds me of a story about a missionary named Alan Gardiner. He was a missionary in the mid-1800s to the entire continent, really, of South America. His mission work was always defined by difficulty, trial, hardship. He stayed sick a lot. He struggled a lot, not just in his personal life, but also in his family. It was in 1851 when he was serving on the Picton Island, which is on the very tip of, of southern South America. He died of disease and starvation. Whenever people finally found his body a few weeks later, his diary was laying right next to him. And so they decided to read through it and to see what he had written about. They read stories about how he was starving to death and there was nothing he could do about it. He was thirsty and there was no water to find. He was sick and there was no medicine that could help. He was lonely. He wasn't around anybody. There, there was nobody there to support him as he went through all of these trials in his life. Then they came to the last little note in his diary. It was written differently. It seemed that he was struggling to write in the last few moments of his life, trying to write legibly. You know what the last page of his diary said? I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Look at the story. Starvation. Sickness. Loneliness, trial, and the very last thing that he writes is, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What about us? When we look at Psalm 65, passages like that, when we see how God interacts with us, how He interacts with the nations, how He interacts with His creation as a whole. 
are we overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God? Despite the trials that we go through, despite how we struggle, despite the pain that we feel, do we live our lives constantly overwhelmed with a sense of how great and how good our God actually is? Whenever we find ourselves there, whenever we find ourselves overwhelmed by a sense of the goodness of God, we're not going to be the same. We can't help but be changed. We can't help but be transformed. See, when you're overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God, you're not going to be the same spouse that you were before. Whenever you're overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God, you're not going to be the same parent or grandparent that you were before. Whenever we're overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God, we're not going to be the same students. We're not going to be the same friends. We're not going to be the same co-workers that we were before. And most importantly, when we find ourselves overwhelmed with the sense of how good God actually is, we're not going to be the same Christians that we were before. We're not going to have the same priorities that we had before. A sense of God's goodness Abiding in our hearts and minds every day that we live is something that is truly transformative. See, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. May the thought about God that comes to our minds, may the thought about God that continually lives in our minds, may the thought about God that reveals what is most important about us Always be centered on His goodness. God's not out to get you. God's not hanging you over the fires of hell just waiting for you to mess up so that He can drop you in and take great delight in that. God, we are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's been suggested throughout history originally by Jonathan Edwards. Take a look at how God interacts with you. Take a look at how God interacts with the nations. Take a look at God how, how God interacts with His creation. And live your life overwhelmed by a sense of His goodness. God is good. We can help you to receive that message into your life this morning. Then let us know how we can do that as together we stand and sing.